0: You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. He's obviously known worldwide for his writings, especially the Chronicles of Narnia, but Lewis was also one of the most brilliant and creative Christian apologists of the 20th century. And when I talk about apologetics, I'm referring to the logical defense of the Christian faith. And he has one particular apologetic argument concerning Jesus that's become known as Lewis's Trilemma. It's called a trilemma because it presents three options rather than a dilemma, which presents two. And this argument is found in his book, Mere Christianity. In this argument, he's addressing people trying to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but not accepting him as God, and basically says you only have three options. Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. Here's Lewis's own words. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You can't say the things Jesus said and just get away with being a good moral teacher. Think about the words we read the last two weeks in John 6. Jesus said, He is the bread come down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, they'll have eternal life. Just think about those words. You can't hear that and just conclude, oh, he must be a good, nice teacher. He's saying things that forces us to make a decision about him. Who can make those kind of statements? Jesus is either a lunatic, he's literally mentally insane and thinks that he is a God, or he is a liar and he's intentionally trying to deceive people, or he's exactly who he says he is, the Son of God. And the necessity of C.S. Lewis making that argument in the 20th century points to the fact that for nearly 2,000 years, the most important question that can be thought through, wrestled with, reasoned out, and debated over is the question, who is Jesus? And as a Bible-believing Christian, I believe that your answer to that short three-word phrase will determine where you spend all of eternity. People have tried to answer it in a million different ways. Pull 100 random people off the street and you might get 100 different answers. He was a wise man. He was a pacifist. He was a social activist. He was an anarchist and rebel. He was crazy. He was demon-possessed. He was good, kind, a role model, a hippie, or just a carpenter from Nazareth who happened to get on the bad side of the authorities and got killed. The confusion and uncertainty around his identity today is astounding, but it's actually nothing new. Remember the apostle John wrote his gospel addressing this very topic. He wanted people to know exactly who Jesus was and is. John 20:31 These are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says this matters. It matters knowing who Jesus is because life is at stake. Eternal life is on the line. And if we rewind from 40 to 50 years from when John wrote this back to the days of Jesus' ministry, we find ourselves here in John chapter 7. We find a whole city, a whole populace, arguing and debating over the question, Who is Jesus? Who is this guy who does these miracles and makes these claims? In John 7, we have about a dozen questions asked concerning the identity of Jesus. They're trying to put their finger on who this guy is. And for us this morning, or whenever you're listening to this, I want us to realize from this passage that knowing of Jesus means nothing. Just knowing something about Jesus means nothing. In this chapter today, there are are many people that have ideas about who he is. They may even know some facts, like where he's from, but they don't believe They know something, but knowing something isn't enough, and that's my greatest concern for you and me. Rarely will I ever address atheism in my sermons. Why? Because there's statistically not that many atheists out there, especially in the part of the world and country we live in. There's just not that many people out there who outright reject the existence of God. But what scares me the most is the fact that there are thousands of people within driving distance from this building I'm in right now who believe there is a God. They may even believe in the God that the Bible talks about. They may even have some verses memorized. They may even come to church every once in a while and wear a cross necklace and know all the words to amazing grace. But if they died today, they would spend eternity in hell. Because knowing of Jesus means nothing. Jesus warns us in Matthew 7, 21, that on the day of judgment, there will be many who called Jesus Lord and even did things in his name, but he'll tell them, depart from me. I never knew you. There was no true belief there. There was no relationship. And my fear is that there are droves of people that we know that will be in that group. And so one of the reasons I wanted to go through the gospel of John is because it so clearly lays out what the gospel is and what it is not and what belief in Jesus means. You shouldn't be able to read through John and not understand what is required for salvation. It's believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died and rose again for our sins. And then the evidence of belief is found in living a life that brings glory and honor to God. It's not just knowing of Jesus or knowing something about Jesus. It's believing in Him as He rightly is. So that's the setup for this chapter today, where from beginning to end, Jesus is embattled by the doubt and misunderstanding of the people. It begins close to home with his own siblings provoking him in their unbelief, and it ends with the Pharisees desperately trying to arrest him. This chapter represents the turmoil of the people as they wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? So let's begin reading in John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. This is thought to be about 6 months after the events in chapter 6, and Jesus has remained in Galilee this whole time. And it tells us the reason is because down in Judea the Jews were seeking to kill him. This is certainly referring to the main religious leaders in Jerusalem. But now the Feast of Booths is at hand. This was one of the major Jewish feasts. It was one of the most well-attended because it was also a major celebration around harvest time. It was also called the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe your Bible version says that. And during this feast, Jerusalem would be covered in tiny makeshift buildings or booths to commemorate the 40 years in the wilderness that the Israelites lived in temporary movable housing. All Jewish males that were able would have traveled to Jerusalem for this feast. And then we have the first mention of Jesus' family since chapter 2. And they're telling him to go down to the feast so all his disciples could see his works. But even just a normal reading of verse 3 and 4, you can sense the sarcasm and disdain in their words. You can see them trying to provoke him. If you really want to be known, then stop hanging around home in Galilee. Go to where the crowds are in Jerusalem. If you're really doing these miracles, then let the whole world see and be amazed. John points out that they said this because they didn't believe. Even his own family didn't believe. And who would know Jesus better than his own siblings? They would have known everything there is to know about him. They had all the facts. This is their brother they grew up with. They shared a room with. But knowing the facts doesn't equal belief. Proximity doesn't equal belief. You can't assume because your parents or grandparents are saved that you are. You can't assume that because you grew up in church or still go to church that you're saved. Proximity to Christian things and Christian people should hopefully lead us to knowing Jesus as Savior, but it doesn't guarantee it. That was the case with Jesus's brothers. They were so close to him, yet they completely missed the truth. And it's obvious that Even if they did believe he was able to do the miracles, they're still thinking through the lens of the world. They're thinking just like the crowd did in chapter 6. If you have the ability to do miracles and wonders, then you should seize the power that's available to you. So it seems his brothers think Jesus is either a fake or a fool. But Jesus tells them it's not yet his time. And this could be understood as him saying it's not yet his time to go to the feast. But they can go down at any time they want. Jesus knows what awaits him in Jerusalem because he calls the Jews out constantly in their wickedness. But his siblings, on the other hand, can go freely down whenever they want. They don't have to worry about anything because they're too much like the world to be at odds with it. Then we have an interesting development, though, in verse 10. It says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So Jesus does end up going later to the Jerusalem, to Jerusalem for the feast, but he goes up in private. He's apparently not with his family or his disciples, so you can imagine him traveling better without being recognized. Remember, this is before social media and email and cell phones, Most people would not have known what Jesus looked like just by walking past him. He would have been recognized more easily when he had his disciples with him. So he's kind of incognito. And all the while, the Jews are expecting him to show up for the feast. They're ready for a showdown. And verse 12 and 13 gives us the perfect picture of the atmosphere in Jerusalem. You have some people saying he's a good man. He does good things. He heals the sick. Then you have some people saying he's leading people astray. He's saying things that are blasphemous. But no one says anything openly because they know the Jews hate Jesus. And no one wants to get on the bad side of the Jews. But of course, Jesus isn't going to remain silent for long. It's not what he does. Here's what happens in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So Jesus begins teaching, and not just anywhere. He goes to the temple, to the center of it all, the place where teaching was supposed to happen. He's definitely not hiding or keeping a low profile any longer. And from verse 15 to 36, we see the response to Jesus from several different groups. We first see the response of the Jews. Verse 15 says, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? The Jews refers to the religious leaders. And they're hung up on the fact that Jesus is teaching with authority and wisdom of someone who has been trained and educated, yet they know He wasn't. They know He didn't train under a famous rabbi. He's a son of a carpenter from Galilee. They obviously recognize the power of Jesus' teachings, but they reject it because He's not like them. They think through it logically and decide they can't accept His words. To which Jesus tells them if their will was to do the will of God... They would recognize his teaching is from God. He accuses them of not keeping the law and asks them, Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus directly addresses the elephant in the room. They want to kill him. And this sets up the response from the crowd. Verse 20 The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? The crowd is always a fickle thing, easily swayed by popular opinion. The crowd is likely made up of all sorts of people from all over the region who are there for the feast. They maybe would not have known about all the tension between Jesus and the Jews. And they say, you must have a demon. He must be crazy because he thinks someone's trying to kill him. But here he is teaching. So the Jews dismiss his teaching, logically. The crowds think he's crazy. And then there's a third group. Verse 25 says, some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. This third group is different from the crown. These are people from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They're city folk. They're from the great, holy, big city of Jerusalem. They're probably generally more educated and wealthier, and they get to thinking through this logically. They seem to to know the authorities want to kill Jesus, so they don't understand why they don't make their move then. Jesus is teaching openly in public. Maybe they actually know he's the Messiah, but wait. He can't be because they know where this guy's from, and they voice this popular belief that when the Messiah comes, he'll come suddenly. He'll appear without anybody knowing where he came from, and it'll be obvious he is Messiah material. The problem is that teaching is nowhere in Scripture. They thought they were enlightened, but instead they're rejecting Jesus based on a false belief. But again, the people are divided over who Jesus is, and verse 31 says, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Some by default are at least putting faith in the miracles of Jesus. But then there's a fourth group that's specifically mentioned in verse 32, the Pharisees. These are a part of the Jews, but they're also a particular party within the religious rulers. And this was the party largely in power during Jesus' day. And we'll hear about them more as we get deeper into John And instead of confronting Him or arguing with Him, they hear what the crowds are saying and send officers to arrest Jesus. And they can't stand that some people are believing in Him and they have to put a stop to it. In their pride, they reject Jesus. These four different responses to Jesus from these four groups should serve as warnings for us. These are four hindrances to initial faith and deepening faith. The Jews judged Jesus and interpreted Jesus through the eyes of the world. He didn't have the credentials of a teacher. Logically, they couldn't accept what he said. If we simply try to figure out the gospel logically, then we'll fail every time. Jesus made it clear in chapter 3 and in chapter 6 that the flesh is no help at all when it comes to the things of the Spirit. It is the Spirit that gives life. Then the crowd dismissed him as crazy. What he said didn't make sense to them. There are teachings of Jesus and truths in God's Word that won't always make sense to us because they're the things of God, but we can't dismiss it simply because we don't understand it. Then the people of Jerusalem rejected Jesus based on a false belief. They were being held back by something that wasn't even true. And we want to make sure that what we believe is in accordance with the Scripture from beginning to end. Even at best, a false belief can hinder our spiritual growth and undermine our faith in God. And at worst, a false belief, a false understanding of the gospel can lead us straight to hell. And then the Pharisees reject Jesus out of pride. They refuse to submit to Jesus's authority. And for many people, pride is the greatest enemy to salvation. I'm a pretty good person. A loving God wouldn't send me to hell. That's Pride. Or in its boldest form, rejecting that there is a God is the highest form of pride, thinking that we know best and we can figure this life and the next out on our own. Again, you can see from these various responses to Jesus that they all know something about him. They all know of Jesus, but they don't believe. Knowing something isn't enough. Now let's turn back to our passage. The Feast of Booths contains several rites, And one of those during the New Testament times was that each day the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam and fill large jars with water and carry the jars back up the long steps of the temple mount until they finally poured out the water. This was to commemorate and remind the people of how God had provided water in the wilderness from the rock, but also symbolized one day that their thirsty souls would be satisfied by a Messiah. The long walk up the steps symbolized the the long waiting for a Messiah. And they would do this for seven days, but then on the eighth day, they wouldn't, symbolizing that God's promises are fulfilled. So with that in mind, here's what it says in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not, given, had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus seizes upon the symbol of water and tells everyone who's thirsty to come to him to drink. And they do this by believing. Then we have one of the first promises in John's gospel, the Holy Spirit. Not only do believers receive eternal life, they also receive the Holy Spirit of God. Throughout the Old Testament, there's this symbolic connection between the Holy Spirit and water, just like you would pour water out on something and completely drench it so God will pour out His Spirit on His people and fill them. Jesus continually astounds them with His teachings. His statements and claims leave no room for neutrality. You're either for Him or you're against Him. And again, we have a great summarization of the overall atmosphere in Jerusalem in verse 40. Some think he's the prophet, after the likeness of Moses. Some think he is the Christ, the Messiah. But still, some say it can't be him because he's from Galilee, and we know the Messiah will be from David's line and come from Bethlehem. Now, that's ironic. I think John puts it in there for that very reason. These people think they have Jesus figured out, but then they show they don't actually know him as well as they think they do. They think Jesus is from Galilee, so he can't fulfill the prophecies concerning Bethlehem. But where was Jesus actually born in? Bethlehem. And if you read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, who was Jesus' ancestor? David. But all they see is a poor carpenter's son from Nazareth. They think they know so much, but they actually know nothing. They still can't figure out who is Jesus. But there's one more person mentioned in this chapter that maybe you didn't expect to hear about again, and I think it should give us a little bit of hope. The Pharisees had sent the officers to arrest Jesus, but they come back empty-handed, and their excuse is that no one's ever talked like this Jesus does. They couldn't bring themselves to arrest him. And this infuriates the Pharisees. But then one of them, a man named Nicodemus, speaks up. He simply points out that according to their law, shouldn't a man at least receive a fair hearing and know what he's accused of before being judged? Now remember, Nicodemus is the Pharisee who came to Jesus by night in chapter 3. And why did he come to him? He was trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? And what it seemed like he was having a hard time grasping the truth of Jesus' words. But here, perhaps a year and a half later, He pops up again and is the lone voice that shows at least a little defense of Jesus. Now, there's certainly nothing in here that would lead us to infer Nicodemus is a believer yet, but it seems like he's at least still wrestling with the truth. And this isn't the last time he'll come up either. Nicodemus gives me hope. And I want to encourage you, if you're listening to this, if you're watching this, and you're still wrestling with faith and Christianity and who Jesus is, don't stop. There's nothing more important in the universe than getting this right. But understand two things. First, wrestling with it isn't enough. Salvation is narrow. It only comes through belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You can get so close and figure out a lot about Jesus, but if you miss that, you miss it all. Knowing something isn't enough. And then secondly, time is urgent. God willing, you do have time, like Nicodemus, to figure this out and come and come to faith. But that's never guaranteed. You never know what day may be your last. We are all one tragedy, one accident, one illness away from eternity. And the incredible truth is that you can know today where you will spend all of eternity. According to God, those who don't believe in Jesus Christ stand condemned in their sin and will spend eternity in hell. But those who do believe in Jesus that Jesus is the Son of God, are given the right to become children of God and spend eternity with Him in heaven. Trust in Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins. And for you Christians, this question of who is Jesus isn't just a question for non-believers. It's still relevant for us every single day. We want to continually make sure we're growing in our knowledge and faith in Him. That is a lifelong pursuit and part of it's making certain that that the Jesus that we believe in is the Jesus of the Bible, that we don't believe in anything that's not in God's Word, and that we do believe in everything that's in God's Word. And in that we enjoy the pleasure of knowing him in a deeper and greater way day by day until one day we see him face to face. That is the joy of a lifelong pursuit of knowing Christ. That's our hope. That is our assurance. That's our confidence, both in this life and the next, that we have found our Savior in Jesus Christ. Amen.